We're live. It's the Atheist Experience coming to you from Austin, Texas. It's December 9th, 2012. I'm Matt Dillahoney. This is Jen Peoples. Welcome. Thank you. Are you ready for me to talk over you for the next hour? Absolutely. I'm surprised you let me even say anything. What? <laughs> Listen, Missy, the big boys are talking. Come on. Somebody, somebody, what was that claim about me being superstitious and always sitting on this side? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I was telling Matt before the show started that we were supposed to switch seats so that, you know, there could be no claim that we're being superstitious here. Yeah, I'm not superstitious. It would be weird, though, after so yeah. many years. It's kind of because you get a whole different perspective with the cameras and the TV and everything. Yeah. Anyway, welcome, everybody. This is a live call-in program out of Austin, Texas, and we're gonna. I, I don't know. Did you have anything you wanted to hit before we get started? I, I just have a couple of news items. Cool. So, I mean, one of them is uh, same-sex couples. And we're can, getting an echo, by the way. Can now get married in Washington. So they are issuing marriage licenses now, and people have already And they can be high when they do it. That's right. (laughs) That's right. And the other thing is the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments in the Prop 8 and DOMA cases. Yes. We will have a ruling sometime um, the middle of next year on marriage equality yeah, they're looking throughout at, the land. Actually. Like March or May is when they're, and then they're yeah, really come out in July or something? End of March is when they're supposed to hear the arguments, and mm-hmm. then they're going to issue a ruling probably uh, end of June, first part of July time frame. I, I'm really optimistic about this, despite the fact yeah. that the Supreme Court's kind of a, a hairy mix. Yeah. And, I, and honestly, looking it over, and just as a layman, looking at what the Supreme Court has said in the past and the precedent on these things, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, you know, we might win this and it could be another 5-4. I wouldn't be surprised to see this as a unanimous or nearly unanimous decision yeah. with, like, agreeing in part and dissenting in part so that they can say, yes, we can't, you know, outlaw this, but we need to make specific, you know. Yeah. That, that wouldn't surprise me much, but then I'm not necessarily a legal expert. Yeah. Uh, I mean, especially um, in the Prop 8 case, the arguments they have... Um, supporting Proposition 8, the denial of marriage equality in California, the arguments were so horrifically weak. I mean, they're almost absurd. And that's what they're going forward with mm-hmm. in this case. And so I, I just don't see them coming out with, you know, a decision in, in their favor. That is the Prop 8 supporters. I don't see them coming out with a, a good a good decision in this case. Yeah, I think both of them are going to come down to uh, definition of marriage because mm-hmm. you know the Supreme Court has ruled like no less than 14 times that marriage is considered a uh, a right, mm-hmm. a foundational right, and yes. that these can't be violated without due process, et cetera, or denied without due process, and so you would right. have to do something illegal. And, uh, then you got Lawrence v. Texas with the sodomy laws and things. So yeah. there's a there's a wealth of precedent that makes me very optimistic about both of these, yeah. uh, despite the fact that there are some batshit crazy justices. Yeah. Uh, on the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Well, and I had one other item I wanted to bring up here, and that is uh, some of you may be aware that a West Point cadet resigned in the last mm-hmm. week 
um, and he he actually resigned by sending a, a post to Huffington Post uh, detailing um, a litany of abuses. Basically, uh, what he's alleging happened is that there is a uh, systematic discrimination against non-religious cadets at West Point, including formal policies to reward, encourage, and even at times require sectarian religious participation. And he also cites the fact that, uh, according to him, extra passes were provided for cadets who participated in religious retreats or other religious activities, um, and, and that uh, he was subjected to mandatory prayers. Okay. And there's a couple of things I want to clarify on this. I, I'm not in a position to evaluate any of these claims. I, I find them, based on my personal experience, to be pretty plausible, credible. Right? Yeah, you know, they're they're yeah, they're at least plausible. Um, but I can't I can't um, evaluate any of the specifics that he cited except for one, and that is the mandatory prayers. And that's based on the West Point spokesman himself coming back saying. The academy holds both official and public ceremonies where an invocation and benediction may be conducted, but prayer is voluntary. Okay, an invocation and a benediction is a prayer. Okay, dictionary.com defines invocation as a form of prayer invoking God's presence, especially one said at the beginning of a religious service or public ceremony. That's a prayer. And if you are in formation, it's a mandatory formation, and somebody stands up and gives an invocation, you have just been subjected to a prayer uh, or a religious activity against your will. If you are a cadet standing in formation or a service member at all and someone conducts an invocation, you have no choice. You can't turn around and say, I don't want to do this. Yeah, you have to be, uh, well, they can they can kind of nitpick on you have to participate in the event, but you're not actually participating in the invocation. That's the individual. But they were talking about a military structure, uh, a, a formal gathering, and they can say voluntary prayer all they want, but yeah. if you're, if a lot of times voluntary prayer is code for uh, you're going to either participate or you're going to be the ostracized one yeah. that, you know or you're going to stand there and listen while the rest of us participate yeah and that's basically what they're doing in these formations yeah there's a lot of sticky things it'd be it'd be good if um we might we might need to get oak back for another talk uh, yeah. in preparation for this he he's a, a former military with he gave a great talk to the ACA on uh, church state separation issues mm-hmm. and violations in the military. But, yeah, unfortunately, this cadet is most likely, even if all of his claims are accurate and true, uh, going to be stuck with his obligation you know, as Actually, a matter of contract. Actually, he, he, he won't because that, that's another part of it. Um, I guess uh, not that long ago his father committed suicide and then he was later diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety. So he has been medically disqualified from being commissioned, but according to the rules at West Point, even though he's medically disqualified, um, he's allowed to continue his education there. So he was on track to get a degree from West Point but not be commissioned. And because of the medical disqualification, he wouldn't have an obligation either. So as it stands, he... Um, he will not get a commission. He will also not get his degree from West Point, but you know he can transfer to another university um, and finish his degree. Um, and he was ineligible to be commissioned anyway. So um, he was with he was with the MRFF, right? In the yeah, he's he's. Uh, in fact, I think he's joining them after he leaves West Point. Cool. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and uh, get to calls. After reminder, after the show's over, we get together and go to dinner um, at Threadgill's 301 West Riverside. Um, when the show's over, and that's about all I'll say. So in Seattle, we've got Josh. How are you? Uh, hey there. Hey. Uh, hey, yeah, I would just like to uh, point out that 
Uh, I can hear my own voice. Great, yeah, we might need to turn that down in here. Yeah. Uh, anyway, what, what, what did you have for us? Uh, I would just like to point out that you are really... Yeah, uh, that guy's not from Seattle. Yeah. Just for the record. Um, Todd in Columbus, how are you? Hi, how you doing, Matt? Pretty good. Good. Well, I've heard before you say that um, we have no examples of nothing. And, mm -hmm. of course, I'll say, well, something cannot come from nothing. Yeah, I don't know but, how, you, how you can demonstrate that. But I'll agree with you. We don't, uh, we don't have the experience of absolute nothingness. Okay. However, we do have the experience that you exist. So everything that can be in existence can either be or not be. And that's, that's a statement that even your scientists will generally agree with. Wait, hang on, hang on. First of all, they're not my scientists. I mean, they're just scientists. So either we're going to agree that these people are, are uh, reliable sources of information or we're not. But, so you're saying that everything that can possibly exist either exists or doesn't. It can either be or not be. Nothing yes. in the sense that, like me, there was a time when I did not exist. And so there was a time there was no me, and now there is. So, so if you have that sense, Matt, without experience absolute nothingness, we have um, a sense of what nothing is. So we can conceptualize, um, even though we don't have an absolute empirical experience of uh, absolute nothingness. I, I have no objection to, to being able to conceptualize or define nothing. I mean, you could just define it as uh, a situation without, without properties at all. I mean, I think it'd be a little bit unreal criteria to say that we have to have some sort of direct experience of everything in order to believe it. No, like I, we have to, I don't. We, I don't. I don't disagree. I, I haven't said that. Okay, but I do want to give examples of subatomic particles, uh, gluons, gravitons. Sure. Why? Yeah. We don't have any contact, but we can demonstrate that they actually they must exist. I just, they're, I just, they're detectable. I just agreed with you that you don't have to have this direct experience to, to be able to address something. Are you, I mean, I know it's unusual for me to agree with people, but when I agree okay, with you okay. and then you come up with examples to prove your case, we're just kind of time-wasty. Okay, I'm sorry about that. And if everything that is in existence can be or not be, there is a logical conclusion no, that's not, that we can reach. First of all, we haven't... Okay, your claim is that everything that is in existence can be or not be, and I don't know that that's true. Because you disagree I, with me. No, no, no. Be, I, I, you, you've changed what you're saying a little bit. Now you're saying everything that is is in existence can either be or not be, and I don't know that that's necessarily possible because... I don't know that it is impossible or that it is possible for the universe to, let's say, not exist or for something that exists to not exist, like an atom. So if you're trying to use infinity, then if there's infinite time, as many evolutionists Who do, said anything about infinity? Everything I, don't, I don't recall even mentioning the word infinity or the concept. But it wouldn't make sense. You have to logically conclude that if you're saying that something cannot be or could not be. I'm not... I, I haven't said that something can be or... Okay, I haven't said that something can be or can't be. I haven't mentioned infinity. Um, you, you just seem to keep be pulling up things that I haven't said. What I said was that I don't know that you can demonstrate that everything that exists could possibly not exist. 
Okay, but even though we don't have direct empirical um, experience of absolute nothingness, we do have scientific principles that say, for example, one of the principles underlying the scientific method, for every effect there must be a cause. And so from that principle, we can sort of trace it back and say, well, if everything can either be or not be, then there must be a time when nothing was. Okay, first, first, of all, first of all, first of all, uh, we haven't decided that everything can be or not be, that that is necessarily true that something could not be. Um, but second of all, the law of causality that you're talking, to, talking about necessarily applies within the framework, the temporal framework of the universe. And when you try to go beyond that, it breaks down, and causality uh, may not be the same there. Additionally, within quantum mechanics, there are different uh, yeah. causalities are different and, and perhaps uncaused effects. So you're basically going against the scientific method by that, saying that. No, no. No. I got a physicist right here who's nodding at me and shaking his head at you. We're not going against science. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not the guy who, who, who should be explaining it. Any uh, logical, rational being in order for there to should consider for order there to be anything, we need some scientific evidence to prove that something can in fact come from nothing, and no. we don't have, correct? No, we don't have to prove that something can come from nothing. In fact, it may be impossible. We don't know. You don't know. I know. Okay. Oh, really? Congrats. So there has to be a creator which was not created. How do you know this? Yes. How, how do you know this? It's being from another being. Todd. Todd. Todd, if you're going to so claim... Todd. Todd. You just said you know this, and I said, how do you know this? Okay, whether you want to say the first mover of the unmoved mover, such as Thomas Aquinas said, the uncaused cause, or what we call necessary being, would have not to have been. You know what we call that? Word salad. Yeah, and special pleading. It's logical conclusion. No, it isn't. It's a logical fallacy called special pleading. Everything, okay. everything has to follow this rule except for your God. Because that's the only way your theology works. But you believe that I exist right now, and do you believe there was a time when I didn't exist? Yes. Yes. Now, would you consider that to be kind of an example of nothing? Correct? No. No. We, do you think you came Why? from nothing? Do you where, th was I where was I before, before my parents had... You know, there, there was no you. Okay, you're confusing no thing with nothing. What you are is a no, collect. Sir. What you are, no, Todd. Todd, let me finish. What you are is a collection of other things that have been put together in a particular pattern that we therefore identify. You didn't. Nothing caused you to become out of nothing. We simply label this particular collection of things that is you. And at one time, that particular collection did not exist in that particular way. Okay, but then you can say that that's nothing. If I didn't exist, then that would be nothing. I mean, any logical, rational, that's stupid to say that you can't conceptualize that and say, well, there was a time when before the Big Bang where there was nothing. There was no, okay, and, and first of all. By that, we can reach a logical conclusion that there must be a creator. And I'll, I'll give you, you an just, example you if you to move Todd, on. Todd, you just said time before the Big Bang, which is a nonsensical concept according to everything that we know so far okay. about okay. universe origins. Uh, but you cannot have infinite finite causes because a finite cause Why not? is not the first cause. No, no, no. no. You there can, must be you, a first you, cause you of all motion. No, all of no. 
You haven't, you haven't demonstrated that, for example, let's just go with one particular hypothesis, that the universe hasn't always existed in some state in some way just because our local, represent, or our local experiential universe has a defined beginning, which actually is just the point at which we cannot say anything about what came before. You haven't demonstrated that it didn't exist in some fashion before. And that's where you lose me, because if you're saying there's infinity, I think that's, that makes a lot less logical sense than there being a God. How, is your God not infinite? Yes. Okay. Have, that's correct. So, and and, that, and yet that makes sense to you. It does make sense to me. You have to have a being that was not created by Why? 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 Why do you, do you have, have to have to? a being? Well, otherwise there couldn't be anything. No, 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 because no. Because no, no, otherwise no. you couldn't have anything, any theology. Why does it have to be a being <laughs> is what I'm asking you. Let's say that we, we both agreed that something... <laughs> let, let, me, let me finish the damn question. Let's, let's say that we both agreed that something, even though we don't necessarily, but let's say we both agreed that something must necessarily always exist and be timeless. What is your justification for claiming that it's a being? Okay, well, let's okay, let's go with that. If if he's not the first, if God is not the first, oh, no, 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 no. You don't get to start with God. You, I'm asking a question. Why? What is the justification why for claiming we, that it I, has to be a being? There is biblical evidence. I don't care for, about what the Bible says. Oh wait, do you think that all of the apostles of Jesus just got crucified for no apparent reason? You know, we've actually uh, talked about this on the show before. Yeah, and and by the way, I, I don't mean to. Uh, there's a good quote that I heard recently, which is, "I don't want to insult your intelligence by pretending that you actually believe what you just said," is relevant to what we were talking about. I asked what the justification was for assuming that this eternal thing is necessarily a being, and you go to the apostles and Jesus. Are you kidding me? Let's say he is the first being. Who? God. Why? Why? No, why no, no, would we do that? You don't I'm just get to God. pick. You don't just. I'm not, I'm not going to no. say your being. Todd. Your, no, we don't Todd. care. We don't care. I'm asking why you call. Why you? What is your? Huh. I'm asking. Let me back up. I'm asking. What is the justification for claiming that it's a being? And you keep going back to. Okay, it's a being. Why? Because we would have to keep going back further in order to explain existence in itself. There's nothing about the there's nothing about the logical problem of an infinite regress that necessitates a being, and I'm asking you, since you think it does, what is the justification for this being? There's many things. The cre- um, the banana, for example. You're done. I don't believe you for a second when you go yeah. to bananas. Yeah. And this idea that you need to pretend to be an ignorant Christian and call the show just so yeah, you can say you got on. it's just tiring, you know. I've had, and actually I just got the opportunity or got asked to do a couple of additional debates. Unfortunately, they wanted to do them on Thursdays, and I, I can't actually do that. I, need to, to, I have a regular job, so I'm trying to make mm-hmm. sure I do it mostly on the weekend. But um, I like having debates. And um, especially, you know, when somebody's actually going to present an argument so that we can discuss the points of an argument. But here's the way that needs to go. Somebody needs to present an argument, and then the other person needs to point out where they disagree with the argument. And that may mean that at the very first premise, you need to offer some sort of clarification or definition or justify it. Because you don't just get to insert a, uh, a premise and have it accepted, I don't know. Right just by fiat declaration. That's just not the way it works. Mm -hmm. And so when you call in and you want to talk about 
cosmology and infinity and first causes and beings, and then you jump to Jesus and apostles and bananas, you're bananas. Yeah. Your argument has no merit, and for whatever reason, you don't understand it. Now, you may have somewhere a really good argument. You need to suss that out and then present it and be prepared to defend the premises when they're addressed and not, oh, you just attacked my premise, so I'm going to do some hand-waving and jump over here to this other thing, which has nothing to do with it. That's, I mean, that's, that's not the way we get to any sort of agreement. If we can't agree on the process by which we go about determining what's real and what's not, then we're stuck, and I need to go on to another call. Yeah. But Marcus in Colorado, how are you? Matt, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks for calling. Oh, no. Um, actually, I owe you guys a lot of thanks. Uh, Jen, I want to say you too as well. Everybody well, thank you. Experience. Thank you. Um, uh, just a quick little blur. My son and I actually just, within the last two and a half, three weeks, really became atheist. Oh, well, and, oh, cool. Welcome to reality. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, ever since, I, ever since I used to go to church, I used to always question things because I was always skeptical. And, um, you know, I went from, I actually went from being a Catholic to, you know, all sorts of Protestants to becoming a Muslim. And then, like I said, two and a half weeks ago, I was here. And my son originally thought it was because of the fact that I used to listen to your atheist experience show or because I used to uh, watch a lot of your clips on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And actually what did it for me was I was talking to another one of my son who's like a hardcore Christian. And I asked him a question because he kept, he kept saying, telling me things. I kept telling him to prove or where this is coming from. And then finally I asked him, I said, well, let's just go all the way and let me ask you, how do you know God exists? And from asking him that question, I had to turn around and ask myself the same question, too. And, mm-hmm. that, and, and that's why I came to the realization of, you know something? I don't have proof of that. Nobody does. That's, yeah. That happens all the time for all kinds of issues. It reminds me of the, the, the guy who was in Hawaii, and they had a school prayer, but it wasn't a Christian prayer. Mm-hmm. And that's when he came to the realization that, hey, maybe we shouldn't be allowing... Uh, prayers in public schools because they're not always going to pray the way yeah. I want them to and so I shouldn't be able to force people to pray the way I want and so let's just get rid of it which is perfect but yeah 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 well one of the question I do have is um, I, I, Jen, I Jen you have to forgive me I don't remember if you are like the you know kind of dirty brown or the light brown hair or if you have like the darker black hair okay but, uh, um, but Matt, there was somebody else who was sitting next to you one day. She, she, she's part of the show, and I really don't remember, if, like I said, I don't remember if it's Jen or someone else, but they were talking about different books that they've read. They went to there because, you know, uh, they found out how religion was created. And I got interested, and I want to know where could I get those books or information to read upon. Um. There's a lot. Basically, we don't, it's, it's kind of, there's a problem with saying this is how religion was created. And it's because... Uh, religion isn't one thing, and there are individual religions that are different and have different origin stories. Um, you know, there's there's these naturalistic religions, uh, animism, and things that that go back to our early roots. Where, it, mm-hmm. in my opinion, that it's just uh, mistakes in the brain of processing causal relationships and things. Um, then there, we know there are some religions, like for example, Scientology. We can be pretty confident in saying that it was basically uh, created out of whole cloth by a guy and then 
carried on creating after he was dead. Same with Mormonism. Uh, same with yeah, Mormonism. Yeah. Um, but so there's not really one answer. There's a number of different theories, and there's some about whether or not there were evolutionary benefits. I don't know. Did you have? Uh, I've got a list of books, and this is primarily. Um, Christianity, or, or more specifically, like uh, the basis for the Abrahamic religions, because it starts with, of course, Judaism and then on here. But there's a book by Tim Callahan, if you can find it. It's called Secret Origins of the Bible. And it talks about, yeah, it talks a lot about um, how the Bible came to be compiled and, and the stories, the ancient stories that a lot of these myths were based on. Yes, I, I believe that's the one you had mentioned. That's yeah. the one I guess I'm really interested in. So I, I will, I will caution. Oh, good. Yeah, that's so. That's one, and um, and the stuff that 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 Callahan writes about in here. There's nothing particularly controversial. He actually puts footnotes in there, so there's a lot of uh, all of this stuff is pretty widely known. Um, there's another one called the Bible Unearthed, and that was written by Israel Finkelstein and Asher, Neil Asher Silberman. Um, and that's a that's a pretty good. It cites a lot of the same research that Callahan cites. If you can't find the Callahan book, you definitely will be able to find the Bible unearthed. So that's another good one. Um, there's uh, the early history of God by Mark S. Smith. That's another good one as well. And I will caution. I will caution you though when you when you start getting into this stuff because there's nothing solid and because we're talking about a bunch of different religions and, and different paths. Um, the field is also filled up with some pseudoscientific yes. conspiracy theory nonsense. I mean, you're, you're going to find some of this. Like, so when you, when you talk about, let's say, the historicity of Jesus, you're going to find some scholarly works on, on the subject. Uh, Richard Carrier's new book is getting ready to come out yeah. where he's attempting to use Bayes' theorem to try and determine how mm -hmm. probable it is that, you know, Jesus existed. Um, there's a lot of other treatments. I know Bart Ehrman just came out with a book on it, uh, and he and Richard don't agree. Uh, but I, I, I would like to see that maybe they, you know, we can suss through that and say that these are responsible scholars and can we find the errors. And then there is a group of fringe astro-theologians who kind of see similarities between different things and then construct a story that links them. And the story is, you know, like, not supported by sufficient evidence to take it seriously. They could be right. There's some interesting stuff. And then there's some stuff, like, uh, that's just way out there, conspiracy theories, you know, about uh, Christianity being a construct of the Masons and the Pope in the fourth century or yeah, something. And I'm it, like, was a, it was a Roman plot. Yeah. To, I think, you know, I think whatever. at will Caesar's Messiah actually gets into some of that. I'm not positive, though. I don't want to trash talk him, uh, having not actually yeah. looked at it. But the, the point is to check a lot of sources and investigate and, um, you know, read competing ideas especially those that directly challenge each other and see who's mm -hmm. got the better cited evidence and the better arguments. And if somebody's consistently pointing out fallacies in somebody else's argument mm -hmm. and they're not responding to say either, no, this isn't a fallacy and here's why, or here's some better information, then you can you may, you may need to disregard kind of both of them until mm -hmm. somebody's made a case that's supported. But as Hume pointed out, you always reject the greater miracle. And so the story that is more absurd and re uh, ridiculous uh, gets it rejected. Doesn't mean you accept the other one. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, well, I mean, honestly, I mean, more, more times than not, it seems as though just using common sense and logic just trips people up. Because Christians, you know, no offense to anybody, but Christians are the ones that I generally have these discussions with. 
And yeah. just asking logical questions really tripped them up. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting journey. And, I'm, uh, you know, I can say my son and I, we both thank you. Well, thanks so well, much for you. saying so, and good luck. All right, yeah. thank you so much. Because yeah. I don't believe in luck, but yeah, can't think of but anything I, else to say. I'll pray for you. Yeah. And uh, being from Colorado Springs, I bet he has no shortage of Christians he can have those discussions with. Them. Yeah, that's that's true. One of the things is that you know, we talked. I talked a little bit about you know the conspiracy theory stuff, and he's talking about um, the arguments that Christians in particular put forward um, in the course of doing a bunch of debates. Um, I've, I've, I've taken a slightly different tact in more recent debates, where I try to discuss the the the, the arguments at a meta level, because the fact of the matter is. Um, there's nothing new, or at least nothing mm-hmm. really new. Right. And so what ends up happening is you've got this classic argument for the existence of God that has been bandied about and holes have been poked into it and objections launched and it falls out of favor. And then sometimes it is you know, unused for a little while and then somebody goes back and grabs it and they'll try and use it without making any changes. And then that, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it sticks for a little while and sometimes they're immediately embarrassed. And then what else, the other thing that happens is that they'll modify the argument. So you went from the the standard cosmological argument, which had an obvious flaw in the first premise, yeah. um, even though it hung around forever. Yeah. I mean, well, not forever, a long time. Mm-hmm. Funny to use forever in that particular argument. Yeah. But uh, and then it got revised, you know, as the Kalam cosmological argument, which right. has gained a lot of. And there's a lot of rebuttals to that stuff. The thing is, what? It, why do people actually believe? Mm-hmm. Now, we Matt Slick called in. We had uh, a debate like three years ago or something about TAG, the Transcendental Argument for the Existence of God. Um, I don't know of anybody who's ever actually been convinced that a God exists because of TAG. Right. Uh, certainly, I don't know anybody who's convinced that Jesus is God because of TAG because that's not anywhere in the argument. Yeah. Um, and so some of these are, seem to be constructed. I know what it is. Um, Scott Clifton, who's uh, yeah. the- theoretical bullshit. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I hadn't had a lot of time to watch most of his videos. Um, I've seen little clips here and there. And after the debate with Tag, he put up like a four-part mm-hmm. commentary on it. And I, ne- I never got a chance to watch it until two or three days ago. And, and actually, I didn't watch it. I just listened to it. I downloaded uh, a bunch of his videos in a playlist, and I listened to him on the drive home. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, Scott's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Scott, you know, we may not necessarily agree on every little nitpicky thing on every argument, but the guy knows what he's talking about, and he is an entertaining and educational machine when it comes to pumping this out. So if you haven't seen videos at the Theoretical Bullshit's videos on YouTube, I'd highly recommend it. Um, he covers a lot of arguments and has some conversations, um, and, and even back and forth in debates. I'd like to see him, you know, doing more, but he's like an actor on a yeah. soap opera. Yeah, he's got real work. Emmy so. and everything. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, good for him. But he raised a point in one of the things that there's two different types of arguments. There's the arguments that are uh, the ones that actually convince people, and then there's the ones that are like gotcha arguments mm-hmm. where somebody's come up with this because they can present it. You can't offer, most people can't offer any sort of refutation. It kind of feeds yeah. on intuition and confusion. And then it looks like they've proven it's, their case. And that's kind of what tag is. It's the baffle them with bullshit yeah, technique. Is. Yeah. Oh, well, there must have been a prime mover first cause, and then because you can't have an infinite regress and blah, blah, blah. And all of this, you know, kind of gets down to equivocations on cause or causality and discussions about that that just may not have any merit. We can't rely on our intuitions. Well, and, and I find that these kinds of arguments, um, I, I generally regard them as um, 
borderline dishonest. I mean, I guess some of them are kind of an intellectual um, um, exercise for the people making them. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of cases, like you said, they're deliberately constructed so that they confuse um, the average um, person in the pew um, who really doesn't believe because of this and would never have accepted this religious claim because of this argument because they just can't, you know, get a grip on it because it makes yeah. no sense. I also think and that, it's, the, that the arguments, that the, I don't think anybody intentionally constructed an argument designed to confuse. I right. think that they went out to intentionally construct an argument to prove their case. Right. And they got confused. Yeah, and that, that was kind of my, like my second comment there. It's kind of a post hoc rationalization for what they already believe. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, let me, let me add some intellectual sounding stuff to this. And they come up with something that's just this monstrosity of nonsense. There's another another video I watched this weekend. We'll get to another call after this, I promise. Uh, William Lane Craig did like an hour-long lecture mm -hmm. with uh, the ten worst objections to Kalam's stuff so bad he couldn't make it up or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I'm planning on going through that uh, uh, to do a talk of my own or maybe a video or a video series if I get time. Um, talking about those ten objections um, and what Craig got right and what what he got wrong because he got quite a few things right. I mean, one of the, one of the first ones, and I'll just hit it real quick, was uh, he, he, that somebody said that Craig uh, said he doesn't believe on the basis of Kalam. He believes on the evidence of the Holy Spirit, and they called him a hypocrite. Well, <laughs> that doesn't make him a hypocrite. I mean, right. you know, he believes for reason A, but he also finds argument B can, compelling. And since he can't infuse you with you know the real. Uh, witness of the Holy Spirit that convinced him he's going with the next best thing that he's mm -hmm. got, but he still finds it valid and sound. Um, but I don't look at that as an objection to Kalam anyway, so, and yeah. neither does Bill. Anyway, uh, Dan in Kingston, Jamaica, how are you? Yeah, yes, my brother. How are you doing? Hello. Yeah. Hello. I'm doing very good. Yes, my brother. I'm doing very good right now, no? Hello? Yes. Yes. Yes, um, in, in Acts, um, in Acts 2, I don't remember the specific verse right now, but um, on the day of Pentecost, the men were in the upper room praying and they received the Holy Ghost and they spoke in other tongues. Now, the, the Pentecostal church is in my country right now. They speak in tongues and, you know, it, wouldn't that correlate with what is in the Bible? Wouldn't that be proof? Would it correlate? Yes. Would it be proof? No. So why, why wouldn't it be proof? Well, first of all, um, there's no demonstration that that they're speaking in tongues that speaking in tongues is anything more than you know a, a babbling incoherently and there's you know when tested we can find nothing about it that is indicative of an actual language um, which doesn't mean that it's you know not we can't demonstrate that it's not a heavenly language that just doesn't conform to any sensible rules about language but at the end of the day what we have are a bunch of people making noises and we have we don't know why and therefore if we don't know why we certainly can't be justified in claiming that the reason is because God has sent a Holy Spirit to inhabit them and make them babble yes yes my, what, what, yes but what I'm saying when, when I'm in church and the people are actually getting the spirit it's not it's not forceful it's like it's not a forceful event that they actually do it's like it comes over them so I'm saying you're not forcing. You're not forcing anything. What yesterday still comes over you and you're, and you're speaking it. Is that you think that the people are faking? Then what do you think about that? No, I think it's the evidence 
um, suggests that it's a learned behavior. So if you're exposed to this kind of behavior in a church, a certain percentage of people will, over time, learn to do this. So they are unconsciously responding to an expectation in the church that they do this. I have a, I have a friend, uh, Jerry DeWitt, who's actually been on the show. Um, he's a former <laughs> Pentecostal preacher, um, spoke in tongues. He's now an atheist, and his, his book will be out, I think, in June, um, Hope Without Faith. He's, he's an atheist. He can still speak in tongues if he wants to. Yes, yes. Um, and, um, yes, um, um, to be honest, I'm really on the verge of um, becoming an atheist right now because the tongue, the tongue thing was, was only the real thing that's kind of holding me back because there's really no other proof you know, for, for the existence of that. And, you know, it's very hard to live in a country where there is that have the most churches per square mile in the world, you know? So um, atheists in my country is very weird, so, you know. Yeah. Well, the thing, yeah. the, another thing about the, the speaking in tongues is, you know, first of all, like I mentioned, we can't demonstrate an actual cause for it. So at best, we could say we don't know. But in the, you know, to the extent that we can investigate it, we find no evidence that it's actually a language. Um, and we've seen this, I mean, this type of thing elsewhere. There's a book... Um, I think it's Popular Delusions and the Extraordinary Madness of Crowds or something like that. It's from yes. 1800s yeah. and 1890s, I think. Yeah. Um, that talks about not just tongues, but other things, you know, in other religions when people are dancing around the fire and they start either babbling incoherently or they start doing things in unison. There's a lot about our brain that we don't understand. And um, in much the same way that maybe some people end up with uh, nervous tics in some situation and, and conditions like uh, Tourette's and glossolalia. Um, I don't. I, I, I think all of those and even a whole bunch of other explanations that we don't have right now are all going to be more plausible than this is some kind of magical experience from a god. And it, yeah. part of part of it is also what purpose could this possibly serve for people to. They don't know what they're saying. Indeed. Indeed. Because in, in the Bible, when I, when I read it the last time, it actually said when the men spoke in tongues, they, they were actually speaking in languages that the native people could understand. Yeah. And today, <laughs> and today in my church, people are just babbling. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how does that really correlate with what is in Acts, you know? So, yeah, I, yes. I, think, I think you're right that there's a bit of equivocation there. Um, you know... The passage in Acts, which I can't remember off the top of my head either, um, was definitely about God giving them the ability to speak languages that they didn't know in order to communicate the gospel to people. That's very different. Um, this, I, I don't, I, I don't know enough about speaking in tongues to go to really cite when it first was popularized or why. But I, I'm pretty convinced that it's a relatively recent concoction. Yeah. Oh, okay. But it's not a traditional Christian um, practice then. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know think for so. sure. I don't, I don't know of any evidence that would say that it was. But even if it was, even if, you know, for the entire history of the church, which I think is kind of absurd because Catholics don't tend to speak in tongues. And, yeah. you know, they've got the older church um, within Christianity anyway. I, I, even, if, even if we got to that point, it would still be we can't demonstrate that this is from a god or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks, Matt, man. You're, you're just so, um, just a logical guy, you know? Like, you guys, so you much. and, um, 
all the guys on the show really helped me to um, really open my mind up, you know? So that's what I give you thanks for that. Hey, and by the way, if you need somebody to come to Jamaica to speak sometime, I'd be more than happy. My passport's up to date, and I'd love to come down and visit. Yeah, man. Anyway. Yes, yes. I would love to have it on here. Thanks, thanks, Dan. I appreciate right. the call. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. See, I've actually been in churches where, or like tent revivals, mm-hmm. where people like fell down on the floor and started speaking yep. in tongues. And what's really funny is when somebody falls down next to them and starts translating, yeah. And it gets really hilarious when the person speaking in tongues suddenly sits up and says, no, that's not what I said. And then they have an argument over the translation of the holy language. There's a, there's a story that I related a long time ago, uh, and this is, this is not evidence. I'm not presenting this as evidence against speaking in tongues. Um, and even if the story is 100% accurate, it's still not confirmation that speaking in tongues is BS. But it's funny. Uh, a friend of mine has a friend. Yeah. So we're already in the friend of a friend category who was part of a Pentecostal church, and uh, it was one of the particular Pentecostal churches that expected it, everyone to speak in tongues, and at a certain age. Mm -hmm. And so he was at the age where he was expected, and so he's up on stage standing next to the pastor along with a bunch of other young people who are all going to be getting the gift of speaking in Mm -hmm. tongues. And he's standing there and has no idea what to do, and kind of looks at the pastor, and the pastor leans over and just says, just fake it, we all do. Now, that's obviously not confirmation that everybody fakes it. But if, this, if the story is true, and I think it is, yeah, because I've met Pentecostal priests. We'll next time Jerry's on, we'll talk a yeah. little bit more about speaking in tongues. Yeah, that'd be cool. But Parth in Chicago, Illinois, how are you? Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Uh, hi, Matt. Hi, Jan. How are you guys? Good. Good. Thanks for calling. Good. Yeah, yeah, okay. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, go straight to the question here. Um, I am basically originally from India, right? Mm-hmm. And I am here in Chicago doing my graduate studies in computer science from the University of Illinois, Chicago. Okay. And uh, my question is this, okay? I have been an atheist for a very long time now, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, my atheism, uh, I know. Yes, you're yeah, still, we're here. still here. Yeah, okay. So my atheism was tolerated in India. Nobody minds, you know, everybody's cool with it. I have friends who are Catholics. I have friends who are Muslim. I have friends who are Hindus, whatever, you know. But the funny thing is, you know, uh, when I came to the U.S., okay, I was under the impression that, you know, this being the most advanced nation on earth, right, with a fantastic education system and you know, everybody is highly educated and whatnot. I was in for the surprise of my life where, you know, we have more fundamentalists uh, in the U.S. than anywhere else. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your travel agent I, I know, sold you a bill I don't understand why this is. I mean, it's, it's, it's all over the U.S. I was, I was for example, uh, I went to Seattle uh, for my internship. And, you know, we have nut jobs like the Discovery Institute right. there and stuff like that. Even on campus, there has been many, many days where I have been accosted by, you know, Bible-thumping nut jobs saying I'm going to go to hell because I'm a Hindu yeah. or whatever, you know. I'm not an atheist, by the way, but... Yeah, and yeah, that's a, that, that's a great response. No, I'm going to hell because I'm an atheist, because I'm a Hindu. <laughs> <laughs> right, but but... I can't seem to, for the life of me, understand why this is, you know, especially in the United States. I don't know about anywhere else, but I was expecting something very, very different, and I was shocked. 
Yeah, well, there are actually, I guess, uh, two schools of thought, at least, about why the U.S. is still so religious compared to other, um, like, um, industrialized nations. And mm -hmm. the first one is sort of like the, uh, the libertarian, you know, free market school of thought that says that because we're officially secular, we don't have a state church, that means that, you know, it's just about ideas. And so a lot of religions kind of developed in the U.S. Um, we talked about Mormonism earlier, um, also right. Je Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, for example, their Scientology. Mm -hmm. So, that, you know, basically you had this sort of free market where you could develop, you know, other religious ideas. And so there's just a lot more options out there. You don't have to pay taxes to the state church and adhere to, you know, a particular state church like they do in some of the European countries. And so, right, you know, right, but, that's, okay. that's one uh, explanation. Okay, yeah, please go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry to cut you off, go ahead. Yeah, the, the other one is that uh, we know from some work of social psychologists or social scientists, I should say, um, that when um, people are, um, I guess, uh, suffering uh, some uncertainty in their lives, so, uh -huh. you know, job insecurity, food insecurity or whatever, Mm -hmm. Those are the times when people are most likely to turn to supernatural beliefs of whatever kind. And the U.S., right. for an industrial nation, has a remarkably poor social safety network. So okay. what okay. fills the gap uh, yeah, there I are churches. Yes. Right. But now the thing is this, okay? Uh, go to India and yeah. you multiply those problems a hundredfold. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know? I, I mean, in India, I have seen very, very poor people being very, very, very tolerant of uh, faith or no faith at all. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't really matter how educated they are, they are just very tolerant. Yeah, there, so, there, there are definitely there's some cultural differences. I have my own kind of speculation about why this is, and honestly, I think it's because we're spoiled brats. Um, <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that the United States um, prospered, and we are, we are living in an era... Um, of rapid uh, improvements to nearly every aspect of our life. I mean, if you go back just 100 years, maybe 150 years, and compare what life was like then in the United States to now, um, it's completely unrecognizable. So we've had, we've prospered, we've benefited, we've, we've um, not had to, to work as hard for advances as other peoples might have in other areas and different times. And so right. you just get and get and get. And then mm -hmm. when you run into difficulties, we have not, we haven't, I think we've had almost, in, you could maybe say entire generations that simply weren't equipped to deal with the difficulties that came along. And so after things like I the see. Great Depression, you, you, you see an, uh, a rise in uh, church attendance. Also in the 50s during, you know, the, the Cold War and the McCarthy era stuff where there's this reactionary backlash to this perceived specter of uh, an atheist regime that, that right, isn't, doesn't right, actually right. exist, and so we become more religious because of it. The good news is that even though um, religiosity in the United States kind of does this wave, you know, advance and decline, the overall trend, at least currently, seems to be for decline and to be declining at a rather precipitous rate. Uh, the, the people who don't identify with any religion are the fastest growing religious classification that you're going to find. I see. 
I see. Well, yeah, that kind of makes sense because I think uh, the um, correlation of you know atheism with communism has has hurt us the most. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, that that could be one uh, one uh, explanation. But I mean, with education comes critical thinking, right? Yes. But th but that and actually brings with up critical thinking comes. You know the attitude of questioning things. Yeah, I'm not but, convinced but that, And people yeah. do not seem to do that that often, especially in the U.S. when it comes to religion. So yeah, I, actually, yeah. yeah, I was going to say that, that that kind of brings up another issue that we're facing here in the U.S. and that is um, this promotion of any intellectualism as almost a virtue. People wear their ignorance as if it's something to be proud of in some cases. Um, and, okay. And I think that's. Um, I mean, you know, all you got to do is look at a certain uh, cable news channel and, mm -hmm. you know, people wear their ignorance as if it's a badge of honor there. Um, and, and so, you know, you can't discount that. It's like, it, you know, if you go out and you engage in some kind of critical inquiry and you try to reason out the answer, you're just some nerdy egghead and, you know, they, they don't have a high regard for that. So, you know, that's a that's a serious challenge we have right now. Yeah, and I wish we had better answers because I think finding better answers about why religion has been so prevalent will help us uh, kind of fix that situation. Yeah. But I think we are kind of fixing it. Um, it's just going to take a lot of time. I see. I see. Thanks so much for your call, uh, though. Yep, okay, no problem. Appreciate yep. it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's go to Bye. next. That's what I was going to go to. Awesome. Simon in Denver, how are you? Hi. Hello? Hi. Hello. Thanks for calling. Thanks for being my call. How are you guys doing? Good. Pretty good. Had our Christmas okay. party last night. <laughs> but um, I think uh, my wife and I, we discovered you guys or the show a week after you guys had that convention in Denver. Oh. Oh, okay. Okay. Kind of sad. So, so you yeah. missed out. I'll be back in Denver at some point, I'm sure. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. There's a lot of churches up there. Yeah. <laughs> You're right about that. You're about that. Um, we watch your show, and we love it. Every uh, Sunday, 8.30 here, we watch. And uh, there is no dispute about what you guys uh, believe in or don't believe. All good. The question that I have is that I have uh, school-age children, and... Uh, one of them actually goes, uh, goes to school, and he's at an age where other kids are talking about Christmas and Santa and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I was just looking for some advice, like, I mean, uh, do's and don'ts, basically. How do I... I mean, we don't obviously um, talk about this stuff at home, but he does this when other kids bring it up. I was just... Oh, oh, you're yeah. you're breaking up a little bit. It, it sounds like you're, and I have notes here about your question. Um, when you take Santa, you, you can take Santa, and I'll take Christmas and Christmas trees in general. Okay. All right. So first of all, uh, my wife and I had our Christmas party last night, and we called it a Christmas party because we recognize that there's a secular Christmas and a religious Christmas, the Christ Mass thing. And as I mentioned on last week's show, which I'll summarize really quickly, most of the things that we in the United States, at least, culturally identify with Christmas are not religious at all, and they certainly aren't Christian. Um, 
you know, the the decorated tree has not only has it does it have nothing to do with Christianity, but there have traditionally been Christian denominations that reject it because of its pagan roots and uh, a passage in Jeremiah that they conveniently interpret, which I disagree with, but it doesn't matter. The big thing is, um, as I said last week, I'm in favor of people celebrating whatever they want for whatever reason. Uh, I don't have any problems with people who don't celebrate Christmas or who celebrate something else or call it something else. I mean, you're you're free to do whatever you want. Um, I celebrate Christmas, and the people who want to say, oh, atheists shouldn't do that because it's a religious holiday, well, you know, so is Halloween at at its origins, and, oh, but it has Christ there in the name, yeah, well, Thursday's got Thor in it, and as I was mentioned before the show, I'm not giving up God damn it or Jesus Christ or any of the good curse words because they happen to have religious origins. I like to keep all the good things from something and get rid of the baggage, and so when I talk about, you know, Christmas and what it is, I mean, you're talking about the list of the things that you think of when you think of Christmas. The overwhelming majority of them have nothing at all to do with Christianity and are actually, in many cases, secular constructs. Uh, I won't get into the specifics about Santa, Santa, but Santa and Frosty and elves and reindeer and presents and wreaths and, uh, I, as far as I know, eggnog and trees. and I mean, just you can make a list for, for days. So just because you happen to be an atheist doesn't mean you have to chuck out Christmas and certainly not the good parts of Christmas like spending time with family and exchanging gifts and taking time off work and having fun and eating and drinking and being merry. But you know, the Santa thing? Yeah, the uh, the deal with Santa. Um, I have a seven-year-old, <coughs> excuse me, and we have never presented Santa as a real person to him. So we, we treat it like we do any other made-up character. So it's a fun story that we like to tell this time of year. So he knows the whole legend of Santa Claus and everything. And up until um, fairly recently, he was firmly in the Santa's Not Real camp, you know, that it's it's only as real as SpongeBob and these other characters he sees on TV. And especially in the last year, he's been influenced by a lot of his peers at school. And so now he's wrestling with the idea of not believing something that all your friends believe in. And so we're having some really productive conversations about that. And he's working out for himself why Santa's not real. And that's a really valuable exercise for him. So I'm guiding him through that, um, and we're using it as a teaching point. I, I think that is that is the... Uh, the um the battling part about it, actually, uh, we were saying something, and then um, his friends are saying something else, and he's kind of, I think, uh, I, I was confused, but he's thinking that, you know, was really, was really right. I, I think it, that's what you state, right? Having your uh, child. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no, there's no, uh, as far as I know, there's no right answer here. I have friends, uh, atheists and non who uh, go for the Santa Claus story? Um, some of my some of my skeptic friends, for example, are in favor of the Santa Claus story as a teaching exercise about how to apply skepticism, and they figure it out, and yet they get to have all this fun in there. And there are others who oppose to it because uh, it involves uh, lying and could violate a, a sense of trust between the parents and the kids. I don't actually know. Um, I'm not even sure, you know, if and when Beth and I have kids, I I don't know for sure what we will or won't do. Um, 
I'm not convinced that there's a right or wrong answer here. It's one of those things that I think is, by and large, relatively innocuous if there is some harm, but I can't say that for sure. I mean, I believed in Santa when I was little, and I don't think it really affected me in any supremely negative way, but I have friends who never did, and that seemed to work out okay for them, too. It, not yeah. everything is, is such, a, such a big deal that we have to, to, to really make a big deal out of it. Yeah. And for the record, I also have a Christmas tree, and, and you know, we, it's decorated and all this stuff, so, you know. And I have two. Yeah. But I have, a, I have a small one and a big one. Anyway, we're about, done with, we're about out of time, Simon. i got to let you go. I apologize, but thanks for calling. Well, no problem, guys. Thank you very much for taking my call again. Hey, once again, just, just one thing. My wife is here, Jenny. She just wanted to say hi to you guys. Okay. I wanted to say hi. I really love your show. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. Bye. See you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So uh, we've only got like yeah a minute and a half a minute so. and a half. Um, so Tom in Seattle Beach, Florida, you're going to need to call back on another week because your topic is big and there's no way we're going to get to it in a minute and a half. So Lisa in Melbourne, how are you? Oh hi, how are you? Good. Pretty good. <laughs> well, my question is, um, I know quite a few atheists, and they all seem to have the same attitude that there is no afterlife. So I'm just wondering, is the disbelief in the afterlife directly related to the disbelief in the Bible? No. No. Okay. Um, uh, even if, well, I, I can't go back and relive my life as if I never heard about the Bible. So I can't do a complete disconnect. But what I can say is that I can address claims about afterlives. Uh, with no regard to the Bible at all, yeah. and and you know I actually did a talk once about uh, other afterlives from other religious traditions, and my big thing is that um, there's not not only is there no reason to think that there is an afterlife, but there's a good reason to think there's not. It goes to the nature of the brain and identity uh, and self, and no mechanism for the surviving and things that happen to to brains that are damaged and erasing identities and rebooting. But we are completely out of time. There's a list of people who are making the show happen. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thread gills. Bye-bye. Six.